Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Songcraft, please take a moment right now to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also hear streaming episodes on Spotify. To receive a bi-weekly email with new episode announcements, sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. You can also keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. To find out more about how you can help support our mission while getting access to bonus content, exclusive contests, and other extras, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. You're listening to Mull of Kintyre, a multinational number one hit for Wings that was co-written by Paul McCartney and our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Denny Lane. The two-time Grammy winner and Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, who was a founding member of both the Moody Blues and Wings, will join us in a few moments to chat about his work in those legendary bands, as well as his prolific solo career. Part one. How's it going, Paul? It's going pretty good, man. Thanks for asking. There's a uh, an unfamiliar man in the room with us. Have you noticed that? I'm super glad you see him, too. <laughs> <laughs> Who's this fella? This guy right here is the oft mentioned mm-hmm. Justin from Pearl Snap in the flesh in the flesh in Songcraft World Headquarters today Justin thank you for coming to be with us today thank you for having me got <laughs> I got on an airplane flew all the way out here just for this Literally. five minute segment for I least, can't believe only you. for this thank God his actual appointment canceled today and he was able to come over <laughs> exactly. and hang out with us for a little while welcome Justin thank this you is uh, it's you cool to uh to have you here. I know you and Paul have known each other uh, a long time. Yeah. And even though I often disingenuously say on the show, our good friend, Justin, <laughs> you and I have not met until today. That's correct. We've been good friends, of course, from a distance. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but now we, we meet in person. Turns out cool guy. That's a relief. Not bad, I would have right? had to gone back and like recanted all that friend <laughs> yeah. stuff. Um, you could just start saying, you know, please visit our enemies at Pearl Snap. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. They do good work. I don't care for them. Um, <laughs> but wouldn't that have actually be like a more of a selling point? Like, it's actually this true. guy it's like does a better such ad. good work. Intrigue. I, I hate him. I actually he does hate such this dude, good work. But, but I have to recommend him. him. He's the best. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so before we get into talking about uh, the specifics of, of Pearl Snap Studios, you're a, a Nashville guy. You you live outside of yep. Nashville. Paul and I, of course, uh, both grew up in Nashville. This is the first episode we've done since the the tornado came through. Man, how yeah. how are things in Nashville? Man, it's 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 the real deal. It um, it's been really cool to see Nashville kind of pull together through this. Um, right. But yeah, man, it was it was a scary night for us, and we're you know we were a good four or five miles away from the actual tornado. Um, they actually found out, I, I didn't know this, but I saw the other day there was actually like 10 tornadoes. Like there was one main Jeez. big tornado, but there was there was several on the ground within that that time. And uh, yeah, it, it was it was a very tense night. It's been a, it's been a sad, beautiful week in Nashville, mm. if that makes sense. There's yeah. a lot of people hurting. There's a lot of um, just destruction but there's also right. a lot of people pulling together and i think one thing I, I do want to mention also you know nashville did get it pretty bad um but cookville got it really bad yeah it was you know i, I think 85 percent or something like that of the deaths were there and right it, it, yeah it's it's really cool to see nashville come together but yeah you know we we definitely appreciate everybody's good vibes and yeah. thoughts and prayers because it's been 
it's been hard to watch. Yeah, the devastation, some of the photos I've seen online and some of the people talking about, obviously people lost their lives, others were injured. The property damage photos are just mind-boggling. And it is just crazy to see how, you know, one weather event in in one moment can completely upend people's lives, but you're right. I mean, Nashville has survived previous tornadoes and sure. floods and all kinds of things, especially having a strong music community there, you get to see how people really do pull together and you know do benefit shows and yeah. um, it's inspiring to see how people react to uh, a really sad and, and unfortunate um, situation so yeah. we're glad yeah. that you're okay yeah we're glad that Pearl Snap Studios is uh, is intact and and everything's you know good with you and your family so that's uh, that's great news and I think you know to, to people who listen to our podcast you're a familiar name sure but a brand new voice Right. Um, and so it, it'd be cool to sort of hear like a lot of people listening have sent you songs. I'm yeah, sure people yeah. are listening right now that have sent songs in and we always talk about it. We say, Hey, you can just send an iPhone demo or whatever, but sure. people really do that. Correct. Oh yeah. All the time. I mean, we, from time to time we get, um, iPhone recordings that, that are just a, just a vocal, just sung into an iPhone and, and <laughs> like with, no, in, no instruments, no without, guitar, without guitar or anything. And, wow. and, uh, do you recommend is, that. You know, <laughs> we'll take them all. We're like the Mother Teresa of demos. Like, bring us your demos. Um, but, you know, it, it does get interesting sometimes because when you're just singing into an iPhone, um, you know, your your key, your pitch, and your, your timing is probably going to vary a bit. So right. um, it can be fun trying to figure out keys and, and, and tempo. However, we do it all the time, and yeah. we, we, you know, we will take them however they come. If you can... <laughs> play use an accompanying uh instrument it's always it's always helpful. invite your nephew over yeah right <laughs> right, right. But that, that's amazing when i think about that when i think about you actually receiving someone that's, that's uh, a recording that someone has just like hummed into or yeah. sung into or whatever you're actually a magician you're, you're more than just a recording engineer well, there's there's a magic to what you do and there's no just app for that where you can just plug in that thing and have right. it turn into a demo like you have to actually sit there figure out the tempo figure out the key play the instruments, sing the thing, yeah. bring it to optimum loudness and compression sure. and, and all those type of things. So uh, we want to say thank you, number one, for supporting the podcast and being Absolutely. a part of what we're doing. And then just for the work that you do to, to keep getting songs out there and to keep bringing people's music, you know, past their, their, their point of imagination sure. and not to something that, that can be pitched and get out into the world. Yeah, well, and thank you guys. I mean, I can't yeah. tell you how many clients have come to us that have heard of us through your podcast or um, that we've turned to your podcast just saying, hey, this is a great resource for songwriters and just you guys are such champions for music and for creators. So I, I got to say thank you to you guys as well. And I think that it's so important for people who are aspi aspiring songwriters, people who are trying to kind of maybe they've written some songs, they want to take that next step in the business. Don't get bogged down in what you don't know. Don't try to go buy a huge Pro Tools rig and learn Pro Tools and master that because, man, you can get into a thing where you're like, why isn't this working? So you Google that and then you Google another thing and then that leads to another thing. And all of a sudden you're on you know, YouTube watching videos about uh, funny hamsters or something and you're completely <laughs> lost track yeah. of the fact that the whole point of this is you're supposed to be putting down a song that you right. wrote because you're a songwriter. Sure. So if you are at that point and you found yourself frustrated with getting your songs recorded, 
You need Justin in your life. You need the person who already has the skills to go and do that thing because you need to be working on your songwriting. You need to be working on the craft, yeah. the song craft, as they say. Hey. And uh, and that's why we love Justin. That's why we have him as a sponsor of this show because what Pearl Snap does is an actual service that, that songwriters need. We're not going to advertise a bunch of garbage that people don't need. We're advertising a Unless service we believe in. Unless they have in. so much money. Well, if they have a ton of money, we can absolutely be bought. I mean, yeah. you yeah. know, we will not sell out in Unless the price is right. I think totally fair. We have yeah. a certain amount of integrity. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Integrity to a point. That's yes. It's going to be on my gravestone. And it's a dotted line. <laughs> <laughs> to a point. Um, I love it. So Justin, I, I know that you have fulfilled your entire reason now for coming sure. to LA. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you'd be certainly comfortable to turn the station wagon around and drive back. That's totally. how you got <laughs> here. Wally um, world was closed. But so. <laughs> yeah. We, we like to have a little fun here on Songcraft, and one of the things yeah, we, we like to do before we start an episode is have a, a, a super meaningless conversation about music and, and things related. Um, we call so, it giggle time. <laughs> <laughs> We'd like to invite you into this process today. Uh, maybe you can turn our shapeless iPhone demo of a conversation into something <laughs> listenable. I have, something uh, polished. <laughs> yeah. I have dreamed of this moment, by the way. <laughs> but, nice. Can I just say? <laughs> we're, we're about to pull back the curtain on our long-awaited interview with Denny Lane mm. of Wings, the Mighty Denny Mighty Lane Wings. Is in my well, you, you've got a point by doing that, <laughs> because I wanted to point out the fact that Denny Lane is, is an amazing rock and roll name. And, and I'll, I'll leave our listeners to figure out whether that's his natural name or not. You, you can Google that and figure it out. But it's a fantastic rock name, especially if you're going to be in a band with Paul McCartney and your name sounds a lot like Penny Lane. Right. And you can't really change your name to Me Loves You or something. <laughs> Denny Lane is much better. Um, Which, if, if, if it's John not, yesterday. If it's, and I don't know, but if it's not his real name. Right. Do you think that it might have been influenced by Paul McCartney being on this giant song called Penny Lane? Well, I'm I gonna, don't know when he took the name. We I'm going to go ahead and 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 let you guys uh, see behind the curtain. Uh, I actually know that is not his real name, and in okay. fact, he started using that name before the song "Penny Lane" well, existed. Okay, so then that's, that's a happy coincidence. Paul, Debbie Paul, Paul stole. Except that there is a Penny Lane. That's also true. But still, who knows what inspires Paul McCartney? He's a mysterious mm -hmm. man, right? Mm -hmm. so. Can I get to the reason I brought Denny up, or do you guys want <laughs> no, to No, Justin doing and it? I are good. If you, if you could just go out for a while. I, I liked it better when you guys hated each other. <laughs> um, so I, I got me thinking about rock names, and a friend of mine brought this up to me the other day. Um, how certain names you think, well, those must be stage names, or maybe that guy should have had a stage name. <laughs> or something. I'll give you an example. Engelbert Humperdinck. Right. <laughs> Obviously his real name, right? I mean, if... It, no chance he picked that as he a... chose it <laughs> or created it or something. But here's here's an argument for that. If you were to hold a gun to my head right now and say, "Name me an Engelbert Humperdinck song," that's a likely scenario. Which <laughs> well, I, I'm pulling that from our past. Um, but I could not do it. But I could tell you if you said Engelbert, what's the last name? Humperdinck. Absolutely. I know the right. name. So maybe that name is just so wild. That it actually made him famous, even when his well, that's music. A good point. You know, I haven't become aware of it. I'm sure his music's very well known, but it's just not my world. Uh, please release me, let me go. Really? Yeah. That's a cover, though. That's an old country song. But he, but uh, it, it made it, it was a big hit for him. Made him okay. a bunch of dough. Fine. So that's fine. You know, still a cover song. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh. <laughs> so was Penny Lane. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know th there are uh, other good examples of this Lenny Kravitz 
How did that yeah, become nice a movie. rock and roll name? Right. Did, how many? Well, first of all, he wanted to go by Romeo Blue. Amazing. Ooh, that's a part of the bio, the name that almost was. That sounds like uh, a rock and roll name. Lenny Kravitz is like, you know, son, I think you're old enough to do your own taxes now. You need to call my friend Lenny Kravitz. <laughs> hey, Kravitz and out. Kravitz. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah I Have feel you like... been injured in a... <laughs> I feel like Lenny Kravitz is the kind of name that you, it needs an LLC after. 100%. You see it on a billboard. Totally. Lenny Kravitz, LLC. <laughs> right. Voted best personal injury attorney yeah. in LA. Uh, I'll give you one you guys are going to be surprised by. Neil Diamond right. is his real name. That's insane. Wow. Yeah. Neil Diamond is pretty unique. That's crazy. That sounds like a stage name. It totally yeah, does. It does. Wow. Yeah. Harold Jenkins turned into Conway Twitty. I, I feel like that's a solid one. I don't know. I, 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 if you forget you know the name Conway Twitty, and half our listeners are like, I do. But if you forget, you know, the name Conway Twitty, then is that a cool name? Like, is that it well, sounds kind of like nerdy. no, it's not a cool name. Uh, Conway's kind of dope. But yeah, like, I like Conway. I don't know about Twitty. How about Kanye Twitty? <laughs> have you seen that meme? I have seen that <laughs> the meme. meme is it is fantastic. epic. Maybe one of the best ones ever made. I it's think fantastic. there's a real science to this. I mean, yeah. I've always heard, first of all, that if you put uh, together a stage name that is two first names. That you got something good going. So right. Billy Joel, uh-huh. Randy Travis, Steven Tyler, James Taylor. By the way, Billy Joel is his real name. I think Elton John was a great improvement from Reg Dwight. Uh, See, I disagree with you on that. I think we all know the name Elton now, and so we're comfortable with it. Yeah. But I don't know anyone else that has that name, and to me that sounds like a real nerd. Like Reg Dwight? <laughs> that sounds like a cool name to me. Hey, I'm Reg Dwight. Like Elton John, I wouldn't have chosen it. I think, I think he made the wrong choice. Yeah, oh. I, don't, I don't. I wonder how much of the uh, the uh, British thing plays into this as well. But Reg, yeah, Dwight. I don't know. Well, uh, it's two first names. True. But I think you got a good point because the Elton John thing totally didn't work out for him. So I, <laughs> I think he may should have. I think people would have heard path. of him if he had stuck with his original name. You know. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I was thinking of, as we were talking. I was actually googling. Just so you guys know, I didn't pull this one out of the <laughs> center of my brain. I pulled it from the center of the web. Ingve Malmsteen right. is not his real name. Wow. It's not his real his name. His name is Ingve something else unpronounceable. <laughs> and somehow he got to the point where he's like, my name is Ingve blah, 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 blah. I should take a stage name. How about Ingve Malmsteen? That'll be easier. <laughs> I have a lot of questions about Ingve Malmsteen in general. So many. I mean, yeah. that's one of those guys who's who's for people who are fans of an instrument yes uh-huh. <laughs> i like the guitar <laughs> so i like that guy and joe bonamassa because yeah. i like the guitar yeah totally hey, is 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 sammy hagar is that is that a real name because that's, that's a pretty cool name i that's think a that's pretty a really name. good name now yeah. if his name was samuel hagar i'm still in the dude. same way no i'm still in yeah, uh, yeah. i'm gonna look it up right now in real time and i'm gonna tell you that his name is Samuel Roy Hagar. Did see that guy was destined? Yeah, to be he had a to be a lead singer. Star. What else are you gonna be? Yeah, yeah. yeah you can't be an elementary school teacher. Hey, I'm Sam Hagar. <laughs> yeah, that's too cool. Yeah. That's a good point. I think David Lee Roth is actually his I, name it, as well. Too. Man, that's you know you know who else has a their original name that's really good is Slash. <laughs> <laughs> He, yes. He was, and he, had, he never we, had a last name. Well, like, that, hey, little, little Slash. We no, shall call him Slash. It's actually his first name is Sla. <laughs> last, last name, name is Sh. <laughs> yeah. I love it. So hey, he, Justin, his last name is Sh. <laughs> <laughs> but can you, like, okay, let's say you're 17 years old. You're hanging out with your buddies. Yeah. 
and all of a sudden Tommy, Tommy Johnson is like, "Hey guys, from now on, call me Slash." <laughs> I'm not. I'm not calling you Slash. Like, right. That's, no, that's... it has to be given to you. It's it's hard to like christen yourself with a cool name. Right. Or sometimes if you're a kid and Barry Gordy gives you a name, then you keep it until your 60s, like Stevie Wonder. <laughs> right. Which has got to feel a little back. odd, too. Yeah. 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 Um, so how about bands? Ooh. Well, bands don't have, like, normal names that they're, like, born with, though. But right. sometimes they're, like, okay, Leonard Skinner, adapted from a real name. Oh, that's a good point. I, yeah. And I don't, know that the, I don't know where this came from, but I heard that Mannheim Steamroller... Oh, Jim like, Steamroller. That yeah. was it. They, like, they named. I, we. I need to look it, that up. Is it Mannheim? I heard Man? that Mannheim was like like I, a person's I name. I think so. Boy, you talk about having questions. Oh, <laughs> questions about Mannheim man. Steamroller, man. Those guys, Mannheim Steamroller. I don't know if they make records that aren't Christmas records, <laughs> but I do know that they play to stadiums. Yeah. Full of people. Stadiums. How many Mannheim Steamroller fans have you ever met? Who are these people? What, yeah. uh, who are these people going to the stadium? And I, from what I've heard, have never been seen in the same room as Trans-Siberian Orchestra either. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, I I have major questions about them. Um, it, can I can neither confirm nor deny. I think it just sounds like Hooked on Classics, though, right? That's, <laughs> yeah, I guess so. That sounds like. Well, I, I feel like we've covered this pretty well. I feel like Justin's looking at his watch. <laughs> um, but I would like to ask uh, our listeners, um, you know, we have this sort of email interchange uh, set up where you can send us messages and we'll read them. Uh, <laughs> That's how that works. Yeah. Um, if you have any sort of stage name suggestions uh, for, for I, Scott I or for already. myself or, or for Justin, if, if we <laughs> oh, could say, uh, you know, this is our buddy Nails at Pearl Snap. <laughs> Or something like that. <laughs> from from here on out, by the way, you will be referred to as Stampede by, <laughs> by, by myself. Totally. I mean, it's kind of how I enter a room. <laughs> right. Mo many social situations, I think, you yeah. have a bit of Stampede or Bull yeah. in a China Shop can also it be your It didn't work out for a Simba's dad, but... Um, <laughs> Too soon. Yeah. Uh, good point. Um, well, Justin, thanks for coming to, uh, to hang with us. Yeah, um, absolutely. Next time you hear from me and Scott, we'll be talking to Denny Lane. Um, right after we hear somebody say part two, two time Grammy winner, Denny Lane was a founding member of the Moody blues for whom he wrote several charting singles and sang lead vocals on the major hit go now after stints as a solo artist and as a member of ginger Baker's air force, he joined with Paul and Linda McCartney to launch wings. In addition to his solo compositions, Again and Again and Again, from the Back to the Egg LP, and Time to Hide from the platinum-selling Wings at the Speed of Sound album, Denny collaborated with Paul McCartney on songs such as No Words from the multi-platinum Band on the Run LP, the single Deliver Your Children, and four other titles from the London Town album, and the non-album single Mull of Kintyre, which became a multinational chart topper that was the only Wing single to reach number one in the UK. In addition to writing the bulk of the material on a dozen of his solo albums, Denny found success with other artists' recordings of his songs, including Say You Don't Mind, which was a top 20 hit for Colin Blunstone of The Zombies, and Rain Clouds, which appeared as the B-side of Ebony and Ivory, Paul McCartney's hit duet with Stevie Wonder. More recently, Denny has been concentrating on writing musicals for the stage, as well as his Songs and Stories acoustic tour. 
In 2018, Denny was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Denny, welcome to Songcraft. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to uh, great to talk with you. I understand that that you grew up in Birmingham, England. Of course, we call it Birmingham, or where <laughs> we're from in Tennessee originally. But uh, but Birmingham, England. Um, what can you tell us uh, about the music that caught your attention when you were a kid, and and what ultimately, you know, really inspired you to to pick up a guitar? Well, if you want the short story, I mean, basically the music that we were listening to was American music, and a lot of it. I mean, we grew up with folk music. I grew up, my sisters had a lot of, you know, records of different um, people that they liked. And, you know, everything from classical Mary Lanza to Johnny Ray to whatever. Right. And, uh, you know, all sorts of music. So you pick up all those influences from that, and then... Of course, when I was a kid, Buddy Holly was a big influence on me because he was the first, to me, the first writer of his music. Uh, yeah. um, Eddie Cochran, you know, people like that. Chuck Berry, definitely. Mm. And uh, and Elvis, because he was a crossover between, you know, he grew up that way, but being around blues music, and he crossed over from country to blues. and So anybody who's kind of progressive like that is yeah. what I was listening to. Django Reinhardt, for example, was a gypsy jazz guitar player and sure. i was very much influenced by that style and those kind of tunes you mm-hmm. know so you were playing gypsy jazz as a as a kid well i wasn't playing that music i was you know take a song for like i don't know sweet georgia brown those are the kind of songs yeah. you used to grow up with you know right a lot of them show songs but they're adapted to jazz by you know traditional jazz you know modern jazz whatever and gypsy jazz, because, well, I mean, my dad has a little bit of gypsy blood somewhere down the line. Um, you know, I automatically went for that kind of music because it was guitar music. Yeah. And it was also, and, and the same when I lived in Spain, I was very influenced by flamenco music, you know, mm. dance and, and music. I mean, my sisters were all dancers. We were all in pantomime when we were kids. Oh. Yeah. Um, so I kind of grew up in that world, you know. Mm. Well, and like most kids that are finding their way in the music world, you, you played with various bands before you put together Denny and the Diplomats, which was kind of a regionally successful group. Now, at, at that point, were you already thinking, hey, I want to do music for my career, or was there something else that you were kind of headed toward as a job? Well, I mean, well, you know, everybody in those days did what they could to earn some money, you know, after yeah. the war. I mean, I had a paper round. <laughs> I had a... a help with a milkman you know i did little jobs out after school before school so you had to kind of do what you could do and and i finally did get a job as a for about i don't know a few months as a trainee buyer of musical instruments for it because oh. i was interested in music i was yeah. in bands at school stuff like that and i knew that well a lot of people were, were uh, into music we, we all grew up they all grew up in the war some of them you know, entertaining themselves, obviously, at home. And uh, we had a piano in the house, stuff like that. Um, so, you know, I kind of went into music because it was a natural thing for me to do. I, I didn't really think about being professional to start with. But as as we got more popular with the diplomats, um, Bev Bevan was in that band from ELO. Again, another progressive thinking guy. I mean, we didn't really want to just do the music of the day. We, we would be more obscure you know, looking for more obscure R&B or blues stuff Hmm. to try and be different. You had to be trying to be different. But Birmingham was 
a place where it was more like everybody played all the music of the day. That was the way you got work, you know. Yeah. Whereas yeah. London was a different scene, much more blues-based. But, but yeah, so we got to as far as we could with that diplomat thing. And then I was, you know, I wanted to turn professional and some of them had jobs. I mean, that again was Birmingham. You all had a job. Um, and so I ended up uh, joining the Moody's because of that. Because yeah. they were kind of wanting to be professionals, yeah. Yeah. I've always kind of wondered where that where that name Moody Blues because uh, I know Elvis had a song later on called Moody Blue, but where did that Moody Blues band name come from originally? Well, Mike Pinder, really, I think, because although I I laid claim for it because I wanted to do blues blues music, I, I mm. didn't want to you know do pop music as much. I was like Eric Clapton, if you like. I was a big or the Stones. Mm. I was a big follower of that music. Um, mm. Uh, and also, you know, when you're writing, you, you're just sitting on with, with the piano or a guitar on your own. You're influenced by those kind of people, you know, Robert Johnson and all those, Blind Willie McTell and, you know, all those guys that you kind of copy, a lead belly. Yeah. And then you kind of write your own lyrics around your life, like they wrote around their life. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, but, but as I say, a lot of it's made up. It's observation. It's like being a journalist, you know. <laughs> right. But, but, yeah, I mean, it's based on what you are and what you see and who you're around, but you also turn it into something else. You know, it's kind of more of a universal message. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, so that's what I got into, really, to start with. And I, I knew that I was, you know, I was getting good at it. I was pretty good with English um, at school. Um, and I was very interested in, in art and um, and poetry and stuff like that. And, sure. You know, I was, I, was, I was like fascinated by certain, you know, stories, history, books, things that, that were educational. And then I, then I wanted to sort of do my own version of that. So yeah. that's how I became a writer, so in a way. Interesting. So once I knew I, I, was do, I, I knew what I wanted to do, first chance I got to turn professional, that's what I did. Yeah. Oh, and the name Moody Blues, by the way, came, I think, from Mike Pinder because, I, you know, he he was listening to Miles Davis a lot, and he had an album out called uh, Mood Indigo. So he claims the name Moody Blues, but to, I forgot to mention that, that it came from the name called the M&B5, and I, I hate to <laughs> bust people's bubbles, but the M&B was, stood for a brewery in Birmingham called <laughs> Mitchells and Butlers. Right. <laughs> it me up. But it's a Brewery, yeah. MB, you know, Mitchells and Butlers, and of course everybody drinks beer in Birmingham. Right. So we were the MB5 because we were going to get a deal. They were going to sponsor us on a couple Oh, wow. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't our idea. It was a kind of a management thing, but right. you know what they do. And then so we got known as the MB5. <laughs> Well, you know, being named after a brewery as a rock band, it's better than being named after like a, a cream for toe fungus or something like that. I mean, it's, <laughs> right. it still fits yeah, the rock and roll I think ethic. We might have changed it. We might have changed it. So you, you know, mentioned that you guys, you know, when you were growing up and you and your friends, the guys that you were playing music with, you didn't want to necessarily just, you know, you wanted to find the cool blues records you wanted to find the the cool stuff your antenna was obviously kind of up um and of course you know the moody blues scored a huge top 10 single in the u.s number one hit in the uk with go now which was a, a cover of an old bessie banks record so long, so long. 
that you you know played guitar and, and and sang the lead vocal on that record but what i don't know is how you managed to you know discover that song discover that record and decide to to cover it because it wasn't a big hit necessarily it was kind of a deep cut yeah well again like i said we had we had our, our, our scouts out you know and some guy came to america and he brought back a suitcase full of 45s his name was james hamilton and um you know, we sat around with those listening to that stuff, and we, and we put some of those songs into the set. Now, the reason we picked Go Now really was because we had a piano in the band. Mm-hmm. You know, not synthesizers in those days, an actual piano. So, right. You know, and that's what Mike Pinder was. He was a piano player, really, to start with. His dad was a pub piano player. That's the style he had, and he was much more kind of bluesy, you know, boogie-woogie type of player, too. But we loved gospel music too. You got to remember that. You know, we loved American gospel. We loved. Well, I mean, you know, Britain has its own form of gospel. Yeah. <laughs> it's called hymns. But uh, <laughs> right. but yeah. So we picked it because of piano influence and also, and it was very much slower. I actually did meet uh, Bessie Banks later on, but um, yeah, I loved her. I loved that gospel type of thing. Elvis was into that too. A mm. lot of these people. Were. Right. Um, so, I mean, it was really because it was a little bit like that. And, um, you know, it used to go down well in the clubs or whatever. And so sure. that's how you tested your, your, your set, you know. <laughs> if it went down well, then... And we finally, when we got a recording uh, deal, we went into the Marquee Club in London, which was the first time it was ever used. They built a studio at the back there. <laughs> the Marquee was the place everybody played, you know. And that's it. We were kind of residents there with the Yardbirds and people like that. Right. So... You know, we went in the back there, and it wasn't finished, the studio. We we cut that record and, um, you know, did it, like, live, like like you do when you've when you learned it on the road. Yeah. You know, you wow. can just go in the studio in and out. That's what it was. So a couple of takes, and there you were. Well, the, the first Moody Blues single that, that we found that features you as a songwriter was From the Bottom of My Heart, um, released in 1965, went up to number 22 in the U.K., and also appeared on the U.S. Hot 100 chart. From the Was that um, something that you guys also had sort of tried out? You know, you played it live and seen an audience reaction. Did you sort of know, hey, this this is a hit. This this song, this song is special. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But the thing is, like as I say, we would try them live. We would try to be different. Mm-hmm. When you're writing, you see, it's just like doing a song that you that you've copied. You try to do a different arrangement. But when you're writing, you try to be different to the stuff that you've been doing, which maybe were you know, classics, because, I mean, the, the mood is because we had the piano, the full voices. We used to do a lot of, you know, drifter stuff or, mm. or platters. Not not so much them, but that kind of style. Yeah, right. You know, and then Roy Orbison was a big influence on, on us, too. I mean, he had, you know, that's where the high notes, ah, at the yeah. end all comes <laughs> from, you know. Right. And that's what Nice and White Satin was, if you think about oh, it. Yeah. Well, bottom of my heart had exactly that same kind of ending where it just went up like a Royal Bison song at the end you know in dreams I think of you and it, yeah. and it raises to a crescendo that kind of thing so uh, using that as a kind of a template or an influence if you like I wrote that song with that in mind yeah. but again it wasn't about anybody particularly 
Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, even George Harrison will tell you, you know, <laughs> something really wasn't about Paddy Boyd. <laughs> 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 right, it just makes for a good story. <laughs> yeah, well, he's just kind of is partly, but you, you yeah. change things around. That's what you do. Right. <laughs> You know, speaking of George Harrison, I, I'm really fascinated by the music scene in the UK in the mid '60s. Um, you know, especially around London, because you've got, you know, the Beatles and the Stones, but then you've got the Moody Blues, you've got the Zombies, you've got all these bands that are literally kind of rewriting music history. But at the same time, you guys are all just a bunch of young kids who just love music and you're kind yeah. of hanging out and going to clubs and absorbing like all this music and swapping records and you know as someone who was kind of you know at the epicenter of that world tell us a bit what it was like to be part of that community at that particular time and place well it was exactly what you said the it started in birmingham because you would you you would do a show and you'd be on there with another couple of bands you become friends with them people, and then you'd listen to a song they're doing, and you might tr do your version. The Stones did it with one of the songs we used to do. Uh, uh, Time is on my side. Oh, yeah. you know, I mean, the London scene, I wanted to go to London, not Germany. So we went to London. We got discovered, actually, by a couple of guys that came up from London. And we went to London, and we were then part of that scene. But like I said, the Marquee Club, you would you'd be doing a double with the Yardbirds or you know those kind of bands or Chris Farlow and the Thunderbirds and I mean uh, John Mayle people like those right. we were all part of that scene in London um, and we all knew each other and, and you'd go down to clubs and you'd meet up with everybody you know Mark Boland was a friend of mine Jimi Hendrix you, you'd, you'd bump into the, the animals yeah. people like that yes people from yes and you would all be in the clubs together and, and I would be down there with like a, maybe John and Paul or somebody like that you know we'd we'd all go out and see whatever band was in town and, and some of the American bands too who came over we'd go and see them uh, Dylan people like that and you'd meet these people because of that uh, you, you sort of got to know them a little bit so you're all bouncing off each other and trying not to be too influenced you know but you can't help it so mm. it's a big melting pot really yeah. so that's what it was like London and and the whole thing, it wasn't just music, you, yeah. know, you know, it was fashion and, and everything else. But, uh, but yeah, it's because it was there to do, you know, we we all had that energy thing of being young kids and, uh, and competitive, friendly competition. It was, it was all about that. Well, there were additional charting singles for the Moody Blues that you wrote, uh, including Every Day and, and Stop in 1965 and 66. Mm. Um, but you ultimately departed the band, and they went on to a second phase with, with Justin Hayward and Knights in White Satin and Question and all that stuff, as you, as you mentioned. Um, but I'm curious, going back to, to kind of that time, here you are in this group, you've had, you know, success as a songwriter and as a performer. What prompted you to say, I'm ready to walk away and, and do something different now? You know, it's usually because, well, without going too deeply into it, the Moody Blues, you know, we never got paid. Mm -hmm. We were all being used a lot in that direction. Nobody knew what the hell was going on. It was like the Wild West. Huh. And you couldn't put your fingers on the money. And, and you know, so we all were out in the road and I just, got fed up with us. I said we, should, we need to go in the studio and make another album to follow up the one we've got out you know because it's not, you know so they didn't want to do that they had a lot of gigs all lined up to do and I so I just parted and went and did my own thing yeah I mean 
you know, there's other personal reasons involved. I mean, I just wanted to progress, really, mm. with my writing, I think it was. Yeah. And and that's why I, I sort of went into a different direction. And being in London as a part of, you know, instead of being a, in a band, but as a solo per, sort of act, sure. I... I mixed with that crowd, which was the uh, the folk people and the underground type of music, you know, like like the New York scene was. I sort of mixed with that London crowd and um, put my own thing together. Hmm, yeah. Well, and in addition to forming kind of an early prog rock group called the Electric String Band, then you released a couple of solo singles in 67 and 68, uh, including Say You Don't Mind. Um, though that one didn't become a hit right at the time, it did become a hit for you as a songwriter five years later when Colin Blundstone of the Zombies had a big record of it in the UK. I've been doing some whining Now I'm doing some finding So say don't mind, don't mind You let me off this time To you I'm blind Everybody says, oh, the girlfriend at the time. Oh, well, that was a thank you for writing that. And it wasn't about you know anybody <laughs> in particular. Because, you know, again, it's an observation. <clears throat> you might be going through something that's, you know, upsetting you, relationships do, whatever. But you, it's really like you wish it was better than it was, you know? <laughs> or you, and I kind of wrote that. I wrote that song really because I wanted to put that band together. Hmm. And I, it was only like, you know, four chords, right. but and with a transposition in the middle to take it to another key. But and with with a, with a middle eight, actually, Colin got the words of the middle eight wrong. He, he said to you, "I'm blind. Something inside, say you don't mind." Well, which really doesn't. And I pulled him about that too later. He said, "Well, it's too late now." <laughs> but I don't think he. I don't think he wanted to say to you, "I've lied and yeah. suffered inside." Say you don't mind. Hmm. which means a lot more. Yes. Mean. But at that time when I wrote that, I didn't have anybody I'd lied to, you know, <laughs> or I was saying, say you don't mind. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, it was just a song anyway, and I put it together for that reason, to to um, to audition some members for that band, really. Oh, wow. And I just had loads of people come in, and we all, I just said, here's the song, and, and that's what happened. So I did it as a kind of a demo in a way. But the guy who recorded it was the same guy who recorded the Moody Blues album, Danny Cordell. Oh, wow. Um, and Gus Dudgeon, Gus Dudgeon, sorry, Gus, oh, yeah. Gus Dudgeon at the time was like the big, you know, engineer. And went on to great fame with Elton John. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, the session guys at the time were Jimmy Page and uh, John Paul Jones. Oh, that's they a good did, uh, played on everybody's records. <laughs> <laughs> right. So. So that kind of wow. added to it. And then it was the other guys were like from, you know, there was like Danny Thompson from Pentangle on double bass and some mm. guy called Mark Sullivan on, on acoustic guitar. These are the folk people, you know. Wow. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and it was really like that. It was, it was very much like a, an underground scene that, that, I was, that I was in. And with string players, obviously, I had two cellos, two, two violins. And I was on. I was playing those kind of gigs, like the Roundhouse with Pink Floyd and the the um, 
underground, uh, what's it called, the UFO club or things mm. like that. Right. And these were different venues for, for all that stuff. Everybody was getting stoned and stuff. and <laughs> You know, but it was a good scene and it was completely different to being on the road with the Moody's. Mm. Yeah. You know, it seems to me that music was changing so rapidly in in the from the mid to the late 60s and and i i believe you and trevor burton put together the band balls and in, in 1969 and and then both spent some time in ginger baker's air force during that same period and you know this is when yeah. music was getting more complex you know and and as a musician and composer yourself you know you're evolving you've kind of done the R&B thing, you've done the folk thing, now you're getting into more like jazz-oriented, pro- progressive rock. Um, I mean, as a, as, a, as a writer, you know, to be kind of in the middle of that, in that period, I mean, was there a sense of just, man, everything's going a, a million miles around me and I'm, I'm completely open to experimentation? Or, or did you kind of have a yeah. vision of like, here's where I want to go to? Well... You know, what it is, you go in that, say, ball, for example. I mean, the direction I went in with that was because me and Trevor at that time were out of work. I mean, we'd both been in big bands, but we weren't doing much. My band went, my guys went to, on an orchestral tour. <laughs> so, I mean, it was a few, you know what I mean? So I, we, I was doing a lot of the time, and P- Trevor was down in London, and he'd left the move, and he was trying to do his own thing. So we knocked, got together. We got Alan White on drums. He was, mm. you know, he's from Yes now. Right. He's been there for years. Right. But um, that was it, really. It was just the three of us uh, who wanted to do so. We did some recording which never saw the light of day. Uh, that's mainly because Jimmy Miller was involved. Jimmy was a bit of a, you know, cokehead. <laughs> Sorry, but he was. Right. Uh, and it was all a little bit too rushed, again, like you say. And I wasn't really, you know, I didn't actually do any writing for that. Or, or at least I can't remember doing anything much. And it fizzled out. So, you know, I did a couple of gigs. But it was a move towards something else. And it's because, you know, me and Trevor went to visit traffic one weekend at their cottage. And um, they were putting Blind Faith together yeah. at the time. And it was Ginger and Eric were down there. And, um, of course, Stevie lived, it was in, still in bed. And we all sort of had a little bit of a jam on the instrument yeah. there. And Ginger bought Stevie, it was Stevie's birthday, and he bought some drums. And Eric had bought him uh, a stand-up piano. So we were sitting there we just jamming with, with them. So... You know, Ginger, when Blind Faith went out and, you know, didn't last very long, Ginger came to one of our parties and he asked me if I wanted to put a band together with him. He had his idea for, for that, that, you know, that big band. And so I said, yeah, can, can I bring Alan, um, Trevor and Alan with me? And so we did. We brought them in as well. Wow. Yeah, it's just a progression. It just things happen. You don't really go looking for it. I've never really gone looking for anything, to be honest. Yeah, well, things just come. You know, just open to the to the new opportunities. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it just falling to the right people at the right time. You know, you might be having a drink with somebody and say, "Oh, I've got this idea." You say, "Okay," 
And you just go with it. You go with the flow if it interests you or if you don't. I guess that's part of being part of a creative community, like like what was going on at the time. You know, one moment you're over here in Ginger Baker's Air Force, and then the next moment you're in Wings with Paul and Linda McCartney. <laughs> um, and that's to a lot of people, that's kind of how your name is best known to them. I'd love to know how you first got to know Paul and how that group came together. Well, like I said before, we were hanging out in the clubs. Um, Bev will tell you as well, Bev, Bev and we, we opened for the Beatles once in Birmingham oh, wow. as the diplomats. We, we did a, a show there and they kind of were in the dressing room. We met them. Um, <clears throat> and so when I got to London with the Moody's, we walked into a club, a big high-end um, posh club. It wasn't really a music club. It was more like a TV star type of crowd, um, <clears throat> TV personalities and things like that. But it was a posh club, and we were in there, and the Beatles were in there. And we all sat at the same table, and we started you know, ordering drinks and having a laugh, and uh, and that's how we got to know them a little bit. And then from then on, talking about George, George became our neighbour. He, he lived just down the road from us. We rented his house outside of London. We used to have quite a few parties there. And then... Um, you know, because people had come back after the clubs and stuff like that. And then we, uh, you know, we, I used to go around to George's quite a lot, um, just to go and hang with him. And, and because he was a neighbour, as I say. And then when I was in London a lot, I would go out to places with Paul, because he, he lived in London. He was the only one of the Beatles that actually lived in London, I think, at that time. I think Ringo might have had a flat, but, you know, Paul had his house, and he'd around the corner from me and my studios. Abbey Road, and um, so I used to go out with him a lot, and we went to see, as I said before, a lot of different people, you know, uh, who are up-and-coming stars. Yeah. Well, they were stars eventually. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of people came from America, as I said, and, and I can remember going out and seeing Jimi Hendrix for the first time with Paul, and, you know, and then uh, the Loving Spoonful and the Birds, like I said, went up to Dylan's Hotel with Paul, I mean, we just used to get to know each other that way. Yeah. And then I would come out to our house and we'd have parties and lots of people would all turn up from the music business. So that was it, really. And so I knew Paul very well. And um, like I say, when I was off the road and the Ginger Baker thing, because Ginger got sick at that time, um, that went off the, off the road. And so I'm sitting there. Actually, I was talking to Mark Bolan at the time because he was getting a deal with the same management as me and I was in the office and I got a call from Paul and uh, to come up to you know to live to um, Scotland mm. sorry and uh, he'd already got Denny Denny Sywell up there and I just got on a plane the next day and that was it. Did, were there any part of you that said oh wow this feels different like this is Paul's band after the Beatles, like any sort of reservation even about jumping into the next project? Yeah, I didn't really, I mean, I wanted to do it because I knew him. Yeah. And I was out, I wasn't doing anything else. And I knew him and I knew we'd, we'd be able to work well together. See? Yeah. I just knew that. I mean, not only did we grow up on the same music, but we were both fans of each other's bands, you know. You know what I mean? Yeah. Not fans so much, but we, we kind of admired each other. Yep. Um, and they used to come by the Moody's house and play their acetates on the way out of town. People, things like that. George and John turned up one time. They're playing us, you know, 
I don't know, whatever. You know, they'd play us their, their stuff that they'd been recording that day. Paperback writer, I remember them doing that once. <laughs> and then, so, as I say, there was no, you know, it's not, everybody, it's like Ronnie Wood joined the Stones. Everybody knew everybody right. from other bands. And so if you if somebody was out of work, you know, somebody got sick or something, and you needed another guy, you knew who to call. You know, you just knew people. I mean, to this day, I know people that, that I've known right from the 60s. And, yeah. and uh, I still see them once in a while. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you, you kind of, you know, Rod Stewart, Jeff Beck, all those people. We knew all them people. Yeah. And, and, and so we were all part of this big thing. Yeah. No. So that's really what it was like. And it, it always is like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's how things happen. Like I said, that's why you don't really go, have to go looking. You know, putting an ad in the newspaper. <laughs> you know, right. kind of, somebody calls you up, like Paul called me and said, you want to do this? I said, yeah. <laughs> but obviously he was older than me. And he was the boss in that sense. But but he, he, only, he only wanted me because he knew. He, first of all, he knew me. And he also knew that, that I'd been kind of a front man in a band and, and he loved the Moody's. We actually toured with the Beatles. Wow. Moody Blues toured with the Beatles. Mm. Yeah, we did this second British tour. Yeah. So, you know, and, and they we all got on really well together mm. and uh, Paul was a big, big fan yeah. of our music. Yeah. He really was. That's cool. As Donovan was as well. He was another big fan of that. Oh, that's yeah. great. Um, well, once the, the Third Wings album, Band on the Run, came along, we see you appearing as a co-writer, co-lead vocalist with Paul on the song No Words. about how that song came about and how you and Paul kind of worked together as co-writers. Well, see, you know, Paul's very prolific, right? <laughs> but, you know, half of his stuff, you, you don't really know what it's about, but it's, it's a bit like Dylan. They're just good words, yeah. you know. So you think, well, you know, you, you, it's like reading a book. You put your own, you know, you put your own spin on it. <laughs> uh, and you see what I mean? Yeah. You, you, See that everybody sees the story slightly differently, and and with his lyrics, and I was I had my style of lyrics. He had his style of lyrics, but you know, I mean, I was really more of a musician than I was a lyricist. You know, so no words was two pieces of music that I had, and he actually said to me, "Have you got any ideas for the for the album?" Mm. Because, well, he was always trying to encourage me to write more. You know, I wasn't writing as much yeah. to start with. And uh, I said, well, I've got these two ideas. So it was his idea to put the two pieces together, you know, okay. to form the the, the, uh, the construction of the song, oh, right. the arrangement. And so, you know, and then he sang, and then he helped me with the last verse or something like that. But again, you know, I mean, I say, I always make this, it sounds like an excuse, but, you know, the lyrics come later in most of the time with me. And it's usually not as, like, look, you say you're in a relationship. You are in a relationship, but it's not quite what you want it to be like, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So you, you kind of make the rest of it. It's like a dreamer. 
and more of a dreamer than anything else. And those lyrics come from that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you've got, you know, I mean, you put yourself into that mood, and you. Well, it's like the Beatles when they first started writing. Everything had love in the title. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and they were writing about she loves you or I want to hold your hand. It was all that. And, and this style then, our style, the Moody Blues style, was more sort of, you know, deeper love songs right. in a way. Right. You get what I mean? Uh, and so that influenced me to write more in that vein, you see. Wow. A bit more sort of personal. But but again, I, I couldn't say that any one of my songs was as personal as they sound. Hmm. Like, I always put myself in like a... a like a reporter or journalist, you know, place where they they see what's going on and then they comment on it. Wow. You, know? you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like an observer. So a lot of that stuff is lyrically is down to that. But but musically is where I help Paul a lot. I mean, especially with you know, um, like arrangements, things like that. I mean, it's the music. He'd sit down and you'd just jam on it. Say they'd get a couple of chords and he'd have an idea for something. I would then play along with him. And then he'd say, I like that bit. Let's do this. Mm. You know, and then you'd join it all together musically first. Yeah. And then you'd write the lyrics, usually. Except in the case of Mullock and Ty, where he had, the, he had the chorus. And then I helped him a lot with the words on that one. Wow. But generally speaking, I, I'm more of like the music guy. I write music, and then I add words to it, you know. It's interesting to me that around the, the same era, kind of, that Wings was working on Band on the Run, that you released your first solo album, Ah Lane, and that's all original songs, including the single Find a Way Somehow. If I could get a word across It cost in spite of all the time we've lost. I'll get it to you now. Find a way somehow. And that to me is the picture of a true creative in that you're you're in a band a busy band that's putting out a big record and yet you're still like well i've got something else that i want to say and something else that i want to do i'm going to make this record over here well no 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 i've got to burst your bubble again now <laughs> because i made that album before i joined with oh really oh yeah it just so happened i had a t-shirt with wings on it no that was the front cover yeah. <laughs> but no i made that album yeah I made that album with, uh, you know, when Tony Secundra was the Moody Blues manager, basically. Yeah. And and I was out of work, and it was the days just before, I suppose. I Actually, I used some of the guys from um, Stone the Crows, the bass player, and the drummer, mm. Stone the Crows. Colin Allen on drums and Steve uh, Thompson. On, on, and so, you know, I was, again doing my own thing then that was just an album i put together because i was hanging out with those people yeah. those bluesers in london and stuff <laughs> so that was done before and it was only released on the strength of got it yeah you get what i mean well it doesn't burst our bubble we're seekers of truth here you know finding the <laughs> truth is always what we want to get to so that's right you'll never get the truth out of me <laughs> <laughs> um 
Well, after Band on the Run, we continued to see you featured a bit more uh, in Wings, like singing lead on Spirits of Ancient Egypt on the Venus and Mars album, then becoming even more prominent on the Wings at the Speed of Sound record, sharing lead vocals with Paul and Linda on Silly Love Songs, handling lead vocals on Paul's The Note You Ever Wrote, and then, of course, singing your own solo composition, Time to Hide. mentioned that Paul was always very um, encouraging of your writing and, and drawing you kind of more in, which I think is is interesting um, in that, as you said, Paul was so prolific. Um, and you guys, I mean, obviously we think, we hear Paul McCartney and we think, oh my gosh, this guy on a pedestal or whatever, but you know, he's your friend, he's your collaborator. Um, but talk about in what ways that encouragement from Paul and, and the ways that he drew that out of you kind of developed your instincts as a songwriter. You know, we all grew up on the same music. So, I mean, look, going back to the Moody Blues, during that tour that we did with the Beatles, he was trying to push um, those were the days on us. He said, this is a good song. It wasn't his song. Yeah, yeah. He thought we were good. He heard of this song and he's trying to get somebody to record it because Paul was a kind of a, like a, you know, I mean, he was almost like a manager in many ways. He was always writing or finding songs and, and recording people doing his songs or whatever, like Mary Hopkins. Well, you know, the fact of the matter was he was encouraging me to be me more. Because I think he felt probably a little bit guilty being the only guy, and also he didn't. He was used to being in a band. He was used to working with John Lennon. Mm -hmm. He was used to being in a band like I was. Yeah. He wanted me to just shine a bit more, you know. Yeah. So uh, that's in fact that's why he wrote. I think he wrote those two songs specifically for me to do. Mm. You know, spirits and uh, and no words. Um, sorry. Uh, cat, what's it called? The note you never wrote. <laughs> <laughs> Later on, the note you never wrote. Yeah. So he, he, and then he was he was trying to get me to come out more and do more singing. So it gave a new vibe to the whole thing, you know. It right. just gave it more of a group thing, which is what he was. He was never really wanted to be a leader of a band. Yeah. You know, it didn't come naturally to him. But because of who he is, he ended up having to be that. It was that same thing. Um, he didn't even want to call it... Paul McCartney and Wings, but that was an ins that was insisted by a lot of people until we actually got to the point where we were just called Wings. Yeah, right. So yeah, so yeah, he was very encouraging in that sense, but he would always try and draw stuff out. Of it. I mean, he got me to do the Buddy Holly album because of that. Right. You know, he knew I loved Buddy Holly. He did. Everybody loved the Everly Brothers and the people like that. So he would always throw harmonies on on my stuff and. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that was the music we listened to and were inspired by. But, but, but as I say, he's always a, you know, in the Beatles, he drove everybody mad trying to get him in the studio. All the <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> I kind of wondered about that Holidays album that, that Paul produced on you, um, because I know that at some point Paul bought the the Buddy Holly song catalog. Was was this before he had, had bought the, the song catalog, or he, did he already own those songs? Oh, no, he had this after. Oh. I mean, he bought loads of stuff. He bought loads of stuff, and not just Buddy Holly catalog. And so 
it was actually I, I got a list of all the stuff. I had a whole bunch of music sheets from the office, and he said, if you can find anybody doing any these songs, you know, could you help produce, put them together, no. you know, we'll do a deal. But I never really did. But he he wanted me to do the Buddy Holly album, but he wanted me to do it with um, with session guys. Right. He wasn't going to be involved so much. Hmm. He might have been playing bass or singing on it, harmonies, but ended up doing it in his farm in Scotland. He did a lot of the backing tracks up there himself, and I just went up and added some guitars and, and sang, you know. Yeah. But, it, yeah, it was obviously from old Buddy Holly stuff. But, look, you know, we were very... I mean, every year we'd have a Buddy Holly day. Yeah, right. And we would hmm. meet all all his family and all his, all his band and people like that. You know, so... We were kind of big influence. We were trying to help those guys as well. Yeah, sure. In a sense, you know, you know, he, he brought a, over um, Professor Longhair and yeah. paid for him to do an album. Oh, wow. He was always encouraging people, but but yeah, generally speaking, that was because he loved Buddy Holly so much, yeah. and he, he thought, well, you know, I'm not buying it to make money. I'm buying it to spread the word sure. as well. You know, keep it alive. You know, I want to talk about the London Town album uh, that features five co-written songs with you and Paul, including the title track, as well as Don't Let It Bring You Down, uh, Deliver Your Children, which was a fairly successful single in several countries. Um, but the best known of your songs from that era uh, was Mole of Kintyre. Now, you mentioned that one before. It's co-written by you and Paul. Became uh, uh, number one in the UK, Germany, Netherlands, New Zealand, e- everywhere. Mole of And that, that's just a huge song in, in the Wings catalog and in, in the whole lore of that era. I'd love to hear, you told us a bit about how it came together, but if you could just sort of tell us that whole story of that song. Usually songs are written, you know, either separately or together. And if you've written them separately and you haven't quite finished them, then the other person helps you finish them. Yeah. That's what happened with Mother Kintyre. But getting back to, uh, there's other things that, that, that weren't quite right. I mean... Deliver Your Children, for example, I wrote that. Paul didn't write that, oh. even though his name's on it. He got on there somehow. But, but, <laughs> but, but, but yeah, but, he, but then again, he did me put it together. You know, it's like, uh, there's other stuff that I've kind of done, um, and he just helped me with a couple of words, and it's, it's the other way around. But with, with, uh, with my look entire, you know, I was in Scotland. I lived on the, on the same piece of land he lived on, and... Um, there was a cottage over the hill, and I went over to, for breakfast because Linda always used to cook breakfast, you know, for us. So he had this chorus, and I said, "That sounds like what's that? That sounds like a real song." But I knew it wasn't a real song because there's actually no such place as the Mull of Kintyre, <laughs> because it's only a mull is a peninsula, and, and the county is, is Kintyre, you know. So we're in the county of Kintyre. And Mole was a little little village, you know. But it really is a peninsula up there. Huh. So he called it the Mull of Kintyre. It wasn't known as that. And so I thought, well, that can't be an original song. We said that it's not called the Mull of Kintyre. It's called Mole. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so I, he said, yeah, but I don't know whether I want to do 
done if I really should do a Scottish song because they might lynch me, you know, you know, they might go there. And I, we had a laugh about that. I said, well, I don't know, why not? Let's just do it, you know what I mean? So we came over, he came over to my cottage the next day and we, we wrote the lyrics, basically. Uh, and I think I, well, I mean, I, I wrote a lot of the lyrics of that. But, um, uh, but again, you know, it's, our, it's his idea to bring in the Camel Turnpike Band and it became like a national anthem yeah. there almost. You know? right. It wasn't released over here. It was released in England and Europe, obviously. Yeah. Right. Because I don't think they thought it was appropriate for an American audience. Yeah. But, but as I say, you know, it's on the Wings Over America album. So I, I, when I do my solo show, I usually do that song. Yeah, yeah. Well, you were again featured as a songwriter and singer on Again and Again and Again from Wang's 1979 album Back to the Egg before releasing your third solo album, Japanese Tears, uh, the following year. And a uh, fitting title given that Paul McCartney was arrested for marijuana possession and jailed for uh, a little while in Japan. Um, and ultimately, Wings disbanded not long after that. What ultimately led to the group falling apart? Japan. Mm. That would have been that was visa problems right there. So you couldn't work, couldn't tour, couldn't plan mm. a tour, um, and that would have been very big for for the new lineup. Yeah. You know, the, the Steve Holly Super lineup. But it didn't happen. So we went into the studio again, and I didn't leave straight away. I mean, we, I, I, I was on a band, I was on a couple of the other albums, um, Tug of War and Pipes of Peace. Um, worked with Stevie Wonder and all those people who came to Montserrat and Carl Perkins. So I was in there. I was a part of it all yeah. still. But I was looking, you know, I again wanted to do my own thing now because I wanted to go out and perform. Right. I wanted to be, you know, I knew the band couldn't go out yeah. and do it. So I did. I wanted to do my own thing. And, you know, I wasn't happy in some ways because, you know, I, you know, that whole thing about the, the the wings setup was well without going into too many personal things um business things it just wasn't really you know i wanted to be more control mm. sure i wanted to be more in control even though they were pretty fair with me i wanted to be more in control do my own thing and have you know have more of a say on everything right. so you know that was it really um so I just walked away. I didn't walk away. I just kind of, what I did was I, you know, started to record. I went and started to do some mm -hmm. recording. And that's why I came up with that album. But, but you know, again, to be honest with you, I was hanging around with the wrong mm -hmm. people. I mean, it just wasn't, it was like, you know, I was having to, everybody's learning at my expense around me. That's what was going on. Because a lot of people, when you've been in these bands, you know, they all think, oh, wow, you know use him, get his name, you know, help him. But, you know, I, I sort of, I won't say I lowered my standards, but it was pretty close to that. I should have just, you know, maybe, I don't know, come to America or something. Or, yeah, I just kind of got up, fixed up with local hmm. people, stuff like that, and I didn't take it too seriously. Yeah. And I was supposed to was a little bit despondent yeah. as well. So I kind of just, you know, let people talk me into doing things, which, you know, kind of got on my nerves hmm. a bit. And... Um, and I got involved with a few other projects, like you know, racing cars and <laughs> things. You know, just things that weren't really music right. so much, but just more of a celebrity kind right. of lifestyle. And it kind of got on nerves after a while. Um, 
and then eventually went to live in Spain for a little bit. So again, for for financial reasons, because of the um, you know high taxes in England, stuff like that. I really didn't want to live in England at the time. That's the truth right, of it. Right. And uh, of course, you know, but I was going through some personal stuff as well at home. So you know, I just wanted to change. That's all it was. Um, I never fell out with yeah. anybody. I, I bumped into them later. Um, and, and after, I mean, after that Wings period in the 1980s, you released, I mean, you were pretty prolific at that point. You released a, a string of solo albums, including Anyone Can Fly, Hometown Girls, Wings on My Feet, Lonely Road. These records were all made up exclusively of original compositions. Um, so it, it was obviously a very prolific era. Looking back on that time now, is there a particular favorite of your original songs from from that solo period that really stands out to you well you know i mean i do some of those songs live i mean wish you could love is one i do live because it's kind of a funky good band everybody gets a chance to play a solo and you know some of the songs i do live because you know i like them as as songs and and they're all you know like I mean, all, most of those songs, I played all the instruments on myself. And it wasn't just about writing the songs. It was about using my studio experience yeah. more. Because we used to do that a lot with Wings, as you know. With, I mean, Band on the Run was just me and Paul. So we, we overdubbed everything else, you know, musically, um, ourselves. Um, well, apart from, the, you know, Tony Visconti doing strings and brass, but I'm yeah. just saying... And so I had that experience, and I wanted. I went in the studio on my own, with just with an engineer, and just knuckled down, you know, and got into doing right, stuff. Yeah. yeah, a lot of the time, I wasn't that happy with a lot of it because it was a computer age, you know, and I was using a lot of stuff like that. I mean, Stevie Wonder gave Paul a drum machine, and <laughs> you know, that was the beginning of the end. <laughs> I mean, the, the thing is, that's where a temporary secretary comes from. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm saying, you know. It, TV one had a huge hit with the drum machine, you know, I called to say I love you. And, and so it was, the, and everybody used it. But anyway, I <laughs> I was I, <laughs> I was in the studio on my own, experimenting with all the experiences. I had, it's called open-ended studio time, yeah, right. Right, where you actually make up a lot of that stuff in the studio. You're writing as you go. Um, so that's what I did. And, and yeah, I mean, I, one album I did like was called All I Want Is Freedom. I mean, they've reissued these things and they put different titles yeah. on them. But, you know, again, although they were very, well, as I say, you know, they're a little bit intricate. Mm. So that's, that's the best way I can put it. They're, they're experimental, yeah. intricate, word-wise and musically. And when you listen to them now, I think, oh, I should have cut that verse down. I shouldn't have made that that's so long. I should have done this. I should have done that. Right. But you see, I didn't have any outside influence there. It was no. just kind of me experimenting. You sure. know, I'm getting it all out of my system. But, uh, so because of that, though, I do have those some of those songs. A lot of those songs I do in my set. I've got three different shows I do. And, and if I do the songs and stories things, I'll throw in about half a dozen of those songs. There's one I wrote about John Bonham called The Portrait. There's a few songs that I kind of put in there. There's one I've written about Paul. In actual fact, I haven't even recorded it yet, but wow. it's called Below the Waterline, about me and Paul, our relationship these days. And it, that goes down really well with an audience. They wow. never even heard it. Yeah. So, you know, the true test is an audience. And when 
the reason I really wanted to leave Wings was because I wanted to play live, you know. Yeah. Because I was getting bored with this studio. It was just draining, you know. You mentioned um, Stevie Wonder, which kind of jogged my, my memory about Rain Clouds um, that you wrote with Paul and, and was the B-side to Ebony and Ivory that, that, that you know, he recorded with, with Stevie. Um, tell us a bit about that song, because I understand that that was... Uh, I've read that, that that was kind of around the time that, that John died when you guys were working on that. Well, like I say, me and Paul did get together the day John died, after he died, because Paul came into the studio, into London. He drove up from his house just because he wanted to, you know, be with somebody. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And so me and him, and he knew that I knew John really well. I mean, much much better than Linda did. So, and he was at home, he was probably going up the wall there, and she probably said, just go to work and, you know, yeah. And see what you can get it out, try and get it out of your system. Sure. So he did, and we just talked about John all day, really, in a way, about some of the stories, and you know. So I mean, it was it was really kind of a, I don't know. He he needed something to talk to, I think, at that time. So that's why he would have come up with a song like that. Yeah. Um, but as I say, mostly with me it was more of the musical side of it, and and yeah, he probably just he probably well he knew that I knew John. Yeah. I used to go out with him a lot, yeah. you know, going to see bands and stuff. So, you know, he knew. So he, that's why I suppose he collaborated with me on it. You know, you're talking about kind of some compiling all the different things that you've learned and putting them to work and, and creating new things. It seems like that that really came to fruition in your stage musical, Arctic Song, which had its U.S. debut in 2016. I mean, talk about trying something new and stretching. I'd love to hear about how that came together and how writing material for a musical, you know, how that's different than composing a standalone rock song. Well, you know, one of the biggest... The, the sad part about that is the guy I wrote it with passed away last year, mm-hmm. uh, Chris Hill. And Chris Hill used to work for Peter Asher. And Peter Asher, as you know, was Paul's, you know, he, Jane Asher was Paul's girlfriend yeah. at the time. Peter Asher started, yeah, he, he ran Apple for the Beatles. Right. Um, and Chris Hill worked with him at Indica Books and, you know, Indica Gallery where John met Yoko. It was all a little crowd we were all part of. So Chris, mm-hmm. he, was a, he was an academic. And he was writing a book for the kids, um, for the university, Cambridge University Press, actually. And he was writing a, a book for the kids called Journey Around the Arctic Circle. So he went there, took pictures, and came back and wrote this book. You know, and, and then eventually he brought all these kids over from the north, like, you know, native kids, um, to do a show at the university. And he asked me to be a part of it because he'd heard of a song I'd written called Rescue My World. And he knew I was kind of a bit of an environmentalist, you know, Right. Yeah. but nothing like he was. So he asked me to do, you know, to, to do the show. So I did. And then um, he got all these notes from, from his book 
got all these notes, and he said, you know, I was thinking about doing a musical, and he, he gave me a list of titles and all sorts of things. So anyway, I I looked at it, and I kind of changed it around almost completely. I took, I thought it was a little bit too serious. It was a little bit too, you know, like, almost like a bloody... I don't know, educational book, really, like a, right. you know, one of those things. And, and but he had it; it had characters and things. So I co- took some of these characters, add some of my own, wrote all the music while he was supposed to be writing the lyrics. But when it, sorry, writing, writing the storyline. Well, the people involved didn't think he was, you know, he wasn't com- he wasn't writing commercial stuff. He was just kind of rambling on about, you know, this and that. He's a bit of a tree hugger, Chris. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So they just kind of gave me the job to finish it off. And so I ended up, you know, kind of changing the storyline from just about the, the North to sort of an alien meets uh, the people from the North and, and comes in disguise and helps the world, you know, solve its environmental problem. I finished it. And then we did perform it with some kids once uh, in the North of England years ago. And it went down really well. So, you know, I kind of commercialed it up, you know, yeah. for sensible. <laughs> um, and, and, then, and then I did it a couple of years ago with the University of Fredonia, which is SUNY, you know, the New York up mm. there in Buffalo. Right. I did it with them people. So, you know, from that point of view, it's kind of got it started a little bit of a buzz going, but never really had the time to get too involved in it, you know. Yeah. You know what I mean? To, to really get take the time because it's very involved doing musicals right. really so I've only performed me personally I, I only performed with a band and an orchestra at this SUNY thing two years ago <laughs> I didn't perform well I, actually I did play guitar with a little trio on the first thing that we did with the kids but it wasn't sort of a big musical but it was, all the kids were doing all the parts you know? right right and, uh, and it was kind of a bit more low key but it's got got really good reaction and it's given me you know a new direction really okay. i mean I'm, I'm thinking about doing another one right now which i've started to write some songs but i haven't really got a, a you know full sort of plan yet but as i say it, it it's something to do and it's some it's really if somebody comes to you what i'm trying to get at is somebody comes to you with an idea it's easier to write about that idea than make the idea up yourself. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because yeah. yeah. they, they come to you with stuff you you don't have to research. I mean, you, you look there, what they've done, and then you... I mean, to be honest with you, Arctic Song is very, very, you know, close to the mark. I mean, I don't know whether I believe in all this global warming and, and the planet warming up, but I do, to a certain degree, yeah. you know, taking a lot of that information... But, but, of course, you have to be careful when you're talking with, with environmental stuff as to how, how true the facts are, you know. Yeah. yeah. So that's why I turn it into a more of a fictional, you know, like a mystical type of story, right. whereby you can't be pinned down and say, oh, that's not truth. You know, <laughs> say, well, you know, right. it's just a bloody, you know, it's like a Peter Pan type of thing. It's like, uh, it's like Jesus Christ Superstar, you know. Yeah. You, you just turn it around into... Sure. But you get the message across. You know? Right, right. So yeah. I really, really enjoy... I really enjoyed doing it to that from that point of view. Yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm about to do something new now. That's great. That's great. Well, you know, more recently you released a single, Meant to Be. 
Just curious if if you mentioned you're, you've kind of been getting into the the musical thing. Any plans for a, a full length Denny Lane album in the near future? <laughs> well, I have rec- I recorded one quite a long time ago, a long time, a few years ago, and it never got released. And I'm st- you know to this day I've still got problems with that legally. Mm. But you never know; it might come out in the future. Wow. But I'm talking about um, doing some live recording. Oh, cool! Because yeah, I always think that live recording is the best, in a sense that you know you you well the energy from the crowd, for example. Yeah. You only get one chance to do the song, you know, yeah. and and you 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 you're putting the best in it. So I'm talking about at this moment in time to do doing a couple of live albums, one one as a solo and one with uh, with a band. So that's the first thing I've got. But I, as I say, I am writing some material for a new idea that I've got, mm-hmm. uh, which Very I can't cool. really go into in detail because it's not, you know, it's not, it hasn't kind of, I don't know, I haven't found a title for it yet it's, uh, or what it's really about. But I was inspired by Richard Dreyfus <laughs> to inspire, to write a song about the Grand Canyon, huh. um, all the layers of the Grand Canyon. So that gives you an idea of yeah. the sort of, Thing I'm working on, wow. and it's it's a history lesson in a way, you know, sure. like it's a little bit like Arctic song really, but it it would be like a sort of a, you know a, a landscape of the world and the history of the world. So I'm I'm kind of working on that, but other than that, I, I I've got all the gear. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm at the stage of writing the stuff, and I'm at, at that stage of, of making some demos and and see what happens, you know, and mm. then. It, then once I've done that, that's in between working live as well. So yeah. I've got a bit of time off now to be writing. So it all depends on that. But right. I like to mix the two. I, I don't like to just be on the road, you know, sure. or just be in the studio. And that was the problem with Wings. We were in the studio way too too much mm. for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Probably, probably because Paul, you know, was so famous. He he wanted to be right. <laughs> Hard to go out. <laughs> like yeah, I escaped. But but yeah, I like to mix it up. So half between that and, and recording, uh, th- that's really what I want to do. I just uh, I try and balance it. Well, Denny, thank you so much for spending some time with us. This has been uh, a lot of fun. Hey, listen, it's great. I love talking about this stuff. It really is. You know, I mean, I can tell you guys know your stuff. <laughs> I hope I haven't given too many secrets away. <laughs> no, we love it. Just kidding. You, you'll know just if you kidding. get a knock at the door. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment now to subscribe to Songcraft in your podcast app of choice and sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. As a reminder, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. And don't forget to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow to find out how you can help support us. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.